am Lemuel Gonzalez, Repentant Sinner, and along with Amity Armstrong, your heavenly host, I invite you to find a place in the pew for today's Painless Sunday School lesson, Without Works. This week we're going to discuss two possibly related things. The fundamentalist idea of history, and how that same notion of God's chosen American people is still working in the national discussion. First up, we're going to learn about a branch of publishing that I, as a person who wants to be in publishing, didn't even know existed, on our new segment called Great Moments in Christian American History. There's another great moment in American history! A. Becca Books was started as part of a curriculum of Christian education developed by Arlen Horton, who went on to found Pensacola Christian College, an independent liberal arts college in Pensacola, Florida. It was started in 1972 and named after Horton's wife, Rebecca, who helped him found PCC two years later. Do we know if he was a pastor, a minister, just a dude? He was... A devout Christian and yes. don't worry about it and other than that? <laughs> a. Becca was his, the first letter of his first name and her name, which was Rebecca, abbreviated into one name. What was his name again? Arlen. Arlen. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. A. Becca Books very quickly became the leading source of educational material for religious schools and parents homeschooling their kids. The advertisements claimed content guided by the unfailing compass of God's Word. So the, they held the Bible over the text, and wherever the Bible pointed, that is where the text would go. You can routinely, going through their books, find scripture citations at different points to punctuate the point of view about history. Cool. I was first introduced by two A. Becca books in my senior year at Shiloh Christian High School. I'm glad for the education I received there and the friends I met, so I'm not criticizing the school. But this is the text they use. The texts for my history and literature classes were published by A. Becca. The American lit books were pretty good, but they were limited. I uh, appreciate the exposure to many, Amer- many American. I appreciate the exposure to many American authors, particularly women authors that were overlooked in my general American literature courses. With every author that got introduced, you were given encouragement and warning about the views of those authors. So uh, I would think heavily leaning into Nathaniel Hawthorne and away from, I don't know, Poe. It was, Poe was recognized. It's very hard not to recognize Poe. We have the short story because of Poe. We have the detective story because of Poe. Yeah. He invented a lot of things that we, uh, we no. still use now. Lemuel, God invented those things. <laughs> but Poe, uh, the transcendentalists, okay. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau. Oh, those yeah, were, anybody who put nature above, you know, anything, right. and not interested. There was a very heavy emphasis on their paganism or their pantheism. There was a lot of criticism of Jack London, which there should be in some respects. Yeah. But He's criticism particularly for being figure. a socialist. Oh, interesting. interesting. And for rejecting religious views, as there was for Hemingway later on. Hemingway had a surprisingly small part in American literature, and so did F. Scott Fitzgerald, because of the kind of views that they had. Oh, interesting. We didn't read a lot of Hemingway. We were forced to read some F. Scott Fitzgerald, which I managed to dodge. I've still never... Never read Gatsby, but I have written several A papers on it. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah Orne Jewett and Willa Cather and a lot of, there was a lot of sort of homespun narrative about 
the expansion west that we got. Right. You know, okay, that's courses. fair. And so that tied sort of to the history mm-hmm. piece yeah. of it. And you hadn't seen these books before you were a senior? I hadn't seen these books. I really, I was assigned them with a really good history teacher who tempered a lot of what we read with a more liberal point of view. Interesting. So, so sh- they knew... Right, she knew that the, the point of view of the books, the history books in particular, was kind of limited. Gotcha. And our lit teacher has said the same thing. Our, she was wonderful. They both were wonderful teachers. And she said, you're not getting exposure to this. They seem to have an issue with it, but this is what we're going to go on with. Well Particularly, done, teachers. Um, Careful, you might get fired. <laughs> Steinbeck was, uh, mm, mm-hmm. was an issue for them, too. Why? Uh, well, Steinbeck... I mean... I guess. There's a lot of... Uh, there's an awful lot of criticism of society in, again, a very kind of socialist-leaning way. Those are considered authors are kind of red, or at least pink. Because we care about people. Right. Which what is an odd that, thing for Christians to be have a problem with. Something that you'll address later today. <laughs> okay. So, so. The history books were informative, but they followed a construct. This is the opening paragraph of the elaborately titled United States History, A Christian Perspective, Heritage of Freedom. And this was published in 1982. So it's this point of view is inexcusable at that point. Also, you went to school in Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes. I don't know that black and brown students in Oakland, California in 1982 look at something called Heritage of Freedom and see a lot of themselves in that. Well, that's why I want to bring up this a couple of paragraphs here to give you an idea of what we were being given. Yeah. From the perilous beginnings on the shores of a wilderness continent, the United States of America has become a leader of nations in the bastion of freedom for the world. This frontier wilderness, so far removed from the civilization of Europe, and for so many centuries hidden from it altogether, has given birth to the highest civilization the world has known. Now, does this sound familiar to you, particularly it's in our current political environment? It's a real MAGA situation. Yeah, it's, yes. uh, America is probably better than a lot of places, mm-hmm. but it's not the best. The first problem is... And also, uh-huh. um, yeah, the... The, the just lack of any right. kind of people before Europe. A Europeans. frontier wilderness far removed from the civilization of Europe and hidden for centuries. This has given the idea that it was simply waiting there for Europeans to discover it. Yes, confined me, Europe. And it's also given birth to the highest civilization the world has known, which is positively untrue in terms of At civilization. At the very least, it's debatable. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> so this is the narrative that they were teaching. The indigenous people were uncivilized. Mm-hmm. They were living in a wilderness. That's not... That piece isn't entirely untrue. And what they constructed was not a civilization. That is summarily untrue. So another passage illustrates this too. As God allowed it, the new world remained unknown to Europeans until the modern age was dawning in Europe, bringing with it a number of important changes which would profoundly affect the history of America. Just at the right time in history, God allowed America to be discovered. Now... The main problem I have is that there's more than one America. There's a North and South America. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure what they're. Also, being discovered by, by Europe doesn't 
Well, the, here is introducing the another idea. Worth something. As like, God allowed it, the New World remained unknown to Europeans. So God was hiding the New World so that Europeans wouldn't find it until the right time came. You know what this feels like? This feels like every sci-fi program or movie wherein humans don't meet aliens until we meet a specific threshold of, right. civilization. <laughs> of civilization or of technology, and then we're allowed to see the larger universe. That's very much see, what this feels this like. This is creating a construct, a devalued the Native Americans, reducing them to placeholders, waiting for the fulfillment of God's plan, the arrival of European civilization. The passage describing the indigenous Americans reinforces the idea that they were just not legitimate. This is how it describes indigenous people. In the summer, they wore little or no clothing, and in the winter, they wrapped themselves in the fur of animals. They worshipped anything they could not understand, like thunder, wind, fire, and the sun. The Indian's high priest was a medicine man. So, it's hot, so they didn't wear much. Smart. It's cold, so they wrapped themselves in fur. Smart. They worshipped anything they could not understand. Now, you don't know what they worship. Well, here's, they didn't let people in to the like this. There's an issue with every statement yeah. that's made. In the summer, they wore little or no clothing. It depends on where the climate was. That's true. Native but Americans also, spread across an entire continent. As a matter of fact, they spread across two continents. Also, Adam and Eve didn't mm. wear any clothing right. when they were pure and good, so I don't know what these people's problems Complaining are. that in the winter they wrapped themselves in the fur of animals as opposed to what they bought at a text. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead or? and say that the fur trade from Europe was right. a huge moneymaker in the United States and Canada, specifically in the North America, right, where beavers right. are. Uh, what is that if not wrapping yourself in the fur of animals in the winter? And now it's just for rich people, not for Indians. They worshipped anything they could not understand, but that's true of any culture yeah. anywhere in the world yep. worships what they don't understand. Mm -hmm. And the Indian's priest was a medicine man. Now, this description reduces a great people from a number of thriving cultures to the same stereotypes you find in a John Ford Western. Right. It doesn't begin to consider the sophisticated varieties of cultures that existed in the Americas. Describing... Indigenous peoples this way doesn't take into account the Mesoamerican people who are building pyramids. Is this the entirety of it? Is this like all you get in the entire you know, book then on you're Native given American? The relationship of Native Americans to Europeans when they first came. Oh, so we got a we right. got a definitely we get a Thanksgiving story. Right. So again, it's not considering <laughs> the cultures, right? Right. By the time that Europeans arrived in the New World between the two, North and South America, there was an estimated 50 million people mm -hmm. and an estimated 10 million of those in North America, yep. probably more. Yep. There was a diversity of cultures with sophisticated languages, religion, and a number of groups had city and monument building skills that existed contemporaneous skills in Europe. One yeah. look at the, as I mentioned, the Mesoamerican cultures who are building things that still can't be duplicated. Yep. Yes. Uh, and their incredibly and... sophisticated religious beliefs. I think the largest pyramidal structure is actually in the Americas. It's yeah. bigger than the Giza pyramids, but it's buried. There now. are beautiful monumental structures here that are still being regarded by architects, by builders, by scientists, incredibly complex calendars. To, to break that or to reduce it to 
yeah, naked savages who worship the sun. It's that's really insulting. Yeah, and it's again putting the construct that they understood were, that the sun was important and right. vital to the the operations of their lives. Yes, and Europeans also worshipped the sun at one point. Mm-hmm. This is so it, it's it's kind of disingenuous. A lot of these criticisms. So. I think that this being raised in a culture that has this point of view is what put us in the situation that we're in now. Because it's only valuing a culture that came from Europe to here. Right. And it's only valuing certain European contributions. Right. We're not talking about here, the history of the Americas here, there's a very brief uh, chapter a precursor to the story of the United States that details the contributions of the Portuguese the Spanish, who living here in California in the western states, Mm -hmm. overwhelmingly contributed the most to American culture in this part of the country. In this part of the country, for sure, yeah. Everything from place names to... I mean, the Spanish and the native people. Right, but I mean, in terms of European people, it's still covering the contribution of English and German settlers in uh, in the The palest of pale skins, the whitest of people. (laughs) So, you see how this sets that up, or mm-hmm. it sets up the kind of points of view that we have now. Yeah. So we'll be visiting this. So uh, we'll, we'll come back and right, we'll do because, other stories right. from the, or other quotes other from... Other stories from early uh, or Christian history. And or there Christian are people who only read, like, if if you were homeschooled right, with the ABECA mm-hmm. program, this is all you got. And if you didn't yeah. have a more enlightened teacher tempering it. Yes. This is your understanding. This is also where we get the idea that America was great and we could make it great again. Right. And where we get, yes, that exceptionalism yeah. idea, the American exceptionalism idea but that here is pushed it's given so the heavily. That God actually put the entire country on hold or the discovery of it until right. European civilization was ready to accept and it. Then, and then we get, well, and and Every textbook, at least when I was in high school mm-hmm. and middle school, I think is the first time I heard it, discusses the manifest destiny. Not, yes. But not as a fact, but as a belief of the time. Well, these books actually push manifest destiny as an idea. And but as a fact. Like, as, a, as a fact. They believed it because it was so. Right. Instead of they believed it. Isn't it ridiculous that they believed it? <laughs> I think even reading secular textbooks uh, as a young person, and this would be back in the 80s, right? you still got the idea that somehow they believed in this concept that everything was on hold for you. I'm thinking of the Beatles song. The world was waiting just for you. I don't <laughs> you know. know that song. So. Sexy Sadie. Oh, yes, I don't. But... Uh, but yeah, it, it 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 gives you that feeling that everything was being held for you, and then when you got here, it really began, and everyone else who was here before was just holding it for you. The entitlement of the white man. Yes, and that was, and again, the way that other cultures and often the of, white woman, but right, <laughs> the other cultures were put aside for that, and I, I think that that's one of the reasons, one of the reasons why A. Becca was good with women authors. And also, at times, with women's places in history was because it was founded by a husband and wife team. And she obviously was a value of... Uh, okay, of, so she was involved. It wasn't just right. her name on it. No. Okay. So they, they edited the books. But again, they also created this idea. Right. 
or well, they furthered this idea. It also just seems dangerous to have textbooks that are edited by two people mm-hmm. with no outside well, I remember that influence? typically when I was, because I, I was a very strange that feels culty kid. To me. <laughs> no kidding. I was a very strange kid. I used to watch a lot of PBS growing up. And anytime there was uh, an American history program, and it wasn't, again, it wasn't very dissimilar from this. There'd be some sort of flute music played in the background, American mm-hmm. history moment. I don't yes. know why the, the, that was always <laughs> the go-to. It's not a flute. It's usually a piccolo. It's usually a piccolo. Yeah. I, like um, like Yankee doodling. So, yes. <laughs> and so what you got, though, was before the program began, there was an educational board that produced history programs. So there was a variety of points of view. Right. This to, seems good. <laughs> this is more along the lines of an author, actually, whose work I really admire, H.G. Wells, who I was fond of growing up wrote a, a set of uh, textbooks that pointed the entire history of the world towards socialism. And it was filled entirely with one man's point of view. And he, he would defer to other experts when he was writing things. But yes, it was his point of yeah. view. And history had a plot. That was kind of the joke of it. But, uh, but here we see it, it's being used to sort of guide a generation of people in a particular way. Right. And culture uh, set up uh, or cultivate a kind of thinking for them. Gotcha. We will be returning to this subject and this book, among others, as we go along in our podcast, especially as it's dictated by current events. Next, we'll see the results of this cult of Christian Americans' exceptionalism, electing prophets to government posts in this week's Not Necessarily the Good News. On May 3rd, 2018, President Trump signed an executive order titled Executive Order on the Establishment of a White House Faith and Opportunity Initiative. Uh, Among other things, this reads, quote, The executive branch wants faith-based and community organizations to the fullest opportunity permitted by law to compete on a level playing field for grants, contracts, programs, and other federal funding opportunities. The efforts of faith-based and community organizations are essential to revitalizing communities, and the federal government welcomes opportunities to partner with such organizations through innovative, measurable, and outcome-driven initiatives. The initiative shall be headed by an advisor to the White House Faith and Opportunity Initiative. The advisor shall be housed in the Office of Public Liaison, and shall work with that office and the Domestic Policy Council in consultation with the Centers for Faith-Based and Community Initiatives and will provide recommendations regarding aspects of my administration's policy agenda that affect faith-based and community-based programs and initiatives. Now, we should start by saying that President George W. Bush established the first faith-based initiatives office in 2001. Uh And Barack Obama renamed and reconfigured it as the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships in in 2009. Under Trump, though, federal agencies and departments that do not currently have a center on faith-based issues are are ordered to designate a liaison to the new office and coordinate with the advisor, which means that the advisor 
uh, will coordinate with the State Department, the FBI, the CIA. It's literally every department See, in the government has to have a liaison. I have an issue about half of this. Okay, I agree that faith-based organizations are, or faith-based and community organizations are essential to revitalizing mm-hmm. communities. Yes. Churches often do a great deal mm-hmm. to shape up neighborhoods that are falling into disrepair. Of and people who are falling. Um, and I think the federal government should partner with them, regardless of whether it's run by a church mm-hmm. or a mosque or a synagogue, which Correct. They, they could. Yes. However, I do not understand why... They should be the, given the fullest opportunity permitted by law to compete on a level playing field for grants, contracts, programs, and other federal funding opportunities. I would agree with the grants issue. Uh-huh. If you're, if the federal government is giving grants for uh, low-income housing, mm-hmm. and you've got a faith-based situation in your community where right. the they are using the church for shelter mm-hmm. and they're building. Um, maybe an ad- addition to that. Right. They should be able to get grants for that. But there should be qualifiers so that the people who are writing the grants can't discriminate services to people based on their version of the faith. Right, which I think is, that is the... The crux of the issue? I'm yeah, thinking. well, okay. it's part of it. So, okay. you're, yes, you're right about that. But this, this also goes, you know, further where every... Every agency and department, every federal agency and department has to liaise through this, Mm -hmm. uh, which seems like uh, a lot to do for one person, one advisor, who we should get to, actually. That's 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 the the, the sort of where this came from up in the news, uh, because this has been a thing, like we said, since 2001. All right. But it hasn't been to this extent. It seems no. like the, the, the president's Well, Bush we don't know. We don't know Obama. what it was doing. Okay. We don't know. But what we do know is early, the, early this month, after the initiative and the office had been leaderless since its inception 18 months ago, the president named Paula White, a woman often referred to as his personal pastor, to the office. So she is the advisor. White who did not attend a seminary, will lead an office normally filled by experts with significant expertise in church, state, legal, and political arenas. So first of all, he has given this appointment to a person that he knows Mm -hmm. um, directly that, though I don't know if I have this later, she actually owns a con- has purchased a condo in one of the Trump Tower's oh, really? buildings. Okay. Uh, so money has exchanged hands at least that way. Uh, so let's talk about who Paula White is. I don't want to shame this woman for her life, but I mm. will shame this woman for her belief and her behaviors. Uh, specifically, not towards what well, we'll get into it. Mm-hmm. Her Wikipedia page states, quote, Paula White is a prosperity gospel pastor, author, and televangelist. Until May of this year, she led a large megachurch in the Tampa, Florida area. She became a Christian at the age of 18 and proclaims herself a prophet, even if she doesn't use that term. This is a quote that she has given to the media multiple times. When I was just 18 years old and barely saved, the Lord gave me a vision that every time I opened my mouth and declared the word of the Lord, 
there was a manifestation of his spirit where people were either healed, delivered, or saved. When I shut my mouth, they fell off into utter darkness. And God spoke to me and said, I called you to preach the gospel. So that statement itself, uh, like some of the statements of um, her parishioner, Donald Trump, seems to have these messianic overtones. I alone can save you. It does feel like that. And I was actually going to ask you, because I don't know, I don't know pastors in Mm -hmm. the evangelical uh, arena. Mm -hmm. Is this something that most of them feel about themselves? I think that there is, as we've talked about before, uh, the evangelical minister is a different kind of creature. Okay. Uh, Sometimes it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, because they're somewhere between an entertainment figure right. and an actual pastor. They do very little pastoring in terms of having a body of, of people they're responsible for that are their flock. Right. And so the term pastor, which comes from shepherd, right. this is shepherding a megachurch is not something that's even possible. possible. Right. You can shift the direction of it, but you're essentially the leader of a very large group of people with similar opinions. Right. When I read this statement, because I have as well, it was sort of surprising to me that she would say something like this. It seems like a lot to say about yourself. I have been blessed by God so that every time I open my mouth, people are cured. And and And, uh, should I ever stop talking, they're going to go directly to hell. Like, that's a lot of power that I don't even think Jesus had. This came afterwards from a history of abuse and sexual and physical abuse, from what I understand. And so it almost, I don't know about yeah, any of that. Th- this is her childhood, and so as uh, she claims it, and so I think that there's also an element of elevating herself from that past by making a, a really grandiloquent statement. Okay, I'm going to need you to send me a link because I don't mm. want to say that sh- there was abuse unless mm. we can link something because yeah, no, I, I didn't see that in any of the stuff that I All read. Right. Okay. She has had a tumultuous adult history. We'll talk about that, including three marriages. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get a little messy here, everyone. And please know that I'm not I'm not judging a woman to do what she wants to do in her life. Um, but I will say that this is a woman who has declared herself the voice of God. So let's see if we can mesh those two ideas together. Uh She was married and had a child when she met Randy White, an associate pastor at the church she was attending. Randy was also married and had three children. Paula and Randy divorced their spouses and married each other in 1989. In 1991, Paula and Randy started a church uh, called the South Tampa Christian Center. Because the church only had five members and could not afford to pay the Whites, the couple, quote, lived on government assistance and the kindness of others. By 2006, however, the church, now dubbed Without Walls International Church, claimed to have 20,000 people, making it the seventh largest congregation in the United States. A year later, uh, a couple announced the church that they were getting a divorce. Uh, Her career was boosted when prosperity preacher T.D. Jakes, whose videos I Mm -hmm. have seen in this very house, invited her to speak at his Woman Thou Art Loosed conference in 2000, which is a phrase we're going to have to come back to at some point. Uh, White has described Jake's as her, quote, spiritual father. She sent him a black convertible Bentley for his 50th birthday, so that's how you know that they're spiritually Mm -hmm. intertwined. 
Jakes recommended White for the position of senior pastor at New Destiny Christian Center in Apopka, Florida in late 2011 after its previous pastor, Zachary Timms, was found dead in a room from, quote, acute intoxication from cocaine and heroin. Tim's ex-wife said in court filings that White was the, quote, spiritual mother of Zachary and that the two had a spiritually, quote, intimate relationship. I don't know what I, any of um, that means. I'm not going to go there. Go ahead. Though her Wikipedia entry and virtually every news piece done on her indicates that she is an adherent to the idea, White has said that she rejects the prosperity gospel. I do not believe in the, quote, prosperity gospel, as I've been accused of believing it, White told the Christian Post. I do believe that all good things come from God, and I also believe that God teaches us so much through our suffering. Despite her claim, White repeatedly promotes key doctrines of the heretical prosperity gospel, the idea that Christians give in order to gain material compensation from God. And we haven't discussed the prosperity gospel. We will. We and I've to. already talked to you. Mm-hmm. We need to do a, a deep dive. I did a, a narrow, just a shallow dive, and then I <laughs> jumped out of the... It was too cold, and I couldn't handle it. Um, you didn't want to swallow the water. But here are some quotes from Miss White to her parishioners that indicate what the prosperity gospel is all about. <coughs> Uh, The first is, quote, I want you to hear from God. God already spoke to me what I'm going to write out. You're going to write your checks to Paula White Ministries, White preached. If God tells you to give $12.99, do it. Whatever the Holy Spirit speaks to you, if you need to give by credit card, do so. (laughs) I'm sorry, that's horrifying. It's disgusting, is what it is. White regularly urges those in her pews to donate to her ministry, promising that God will bless them with wealth and, quote, visions in return. She sometimes warns her followers that their dream will die if they don't. I don't... Mm. That's big words, lady. In 2018, she came into the spotlight, then as the head of the Evangelical Advisory Board to President Trump, after she suggested making a donation to her ministries to honor the religious principle of, quote, first fruit. Yes. Which, uh, which she said is the idea that all of your firsts belong to God, including the first harvest and apparently your salary for the month of January. That's a very interesting interpretation of it. It's the same principle as tithes. 10% of what you create goes to support the church. That's or, fine, you... but the first 10% needs to go to feeding my children. Well, this is 10% of, it doesn't say the first 10%. <laughs> There are people in the Old Testament, particularly, who gave the first, the first fruit of their harvest. They would give right. to the poor. They, it's a principle. However, I, the but way she's applying the it... The first fruit of your harvest is typically when you can see that all of your stuff has, har- has, mm-hmm. has come to blossom. Right. And the first that you pull, then you can give away. Right. But because you see that you are... Her application of this principle yeah. is very strange. And also, <laughs> promising visions in return seems to be very... Yeah, I don't know how I, you I don't get understand the, how you mm-hmm. promise spiritual insight based on the donation of money. And she would go on, she'd say, right now I want you to click on that button. I want you, and this is a, a video on her website. Okay, so this is where this is coming from. And I want you to honor God with his first fruits offering, she said in a video shared to her website, in which she encourages her followers to donate to her ministries to get blessings from God. If God doesn't divinely step in and intervene, 
I don't know what you're going to face. He does. So there's an implicit threat. There is a threat. Okay. Uh, she made a similar plea in 2019. So she, as much heat as she got for this a year ago, she went ahead and did it again. Uh, so my understanding of this prosperity theology um, is this, and this is just very, very basic. Mm-hmm. It's uh, It emphasizes the importance of personal empowerment, provoke, proposing that God, it's God's will for his people to be blessed. The atonement or reconciliation with God is interpreted to include the alleviation of sickness and poverty, which are viewed as curses to be broken by faith. Basically, if you are good, you will be healthy and wealthy. If you are good and and God looks favorably upon you, you will be healthy and wealthy. Right. But the way that they view you being good often is writing a check to the so, ministers who are telling you and this. And you earlier brought up Bishop Jakes, yeah. who, who is a person who has done a great deal of good. I'm not so sure, though, I would put him in the prosperity. I understand that he does have inclinations that way, but when we're describing an African-American minister telling people it's not your destiny to be broke and humbled all the time. No, that's There's fair. There's a world of difference. There, That is fair, so, especially if he's not then saying, pull out your checks and write checks right. to me. And so in terms so, of, I remember yes. the... And we'll, we'll, I think we'll he, get He did have two that. sets of, because uh, you brought up Women Aren't Thou Art Loosed, which we used to have here. My mom used to listen to it. And used to listen to Paula White back in the day when she was first introduced. Um... I don't think she knew the history, or else she wouldn't have been a. She wouldn't have listened to her at all. Right. Particularly the idea that she broke up a home to get married, which is that's n- not not what we typically do. the evangelicals are not super keen on that. But they're also not, uh, by and large, not adhering to the same moral laws that they give to everyone else. And the, this comes the idea of exceptionalism. I'm speaking for God, therefore the rules don't apply. Don't to apply me. to me, which is. Uh, wild, it right. should be the opposite of that. No, exactly. You should be <laughs> adhering to the rules closer yeah. because you're the example. But I remember when she first came onto the public scene, and it was through Jake's. He had two, um, he had two separate seminars that he would do. Manpower. Oh no! No, that was good. Manpower actually was good because it was geared towards mostly African American, largely African American men, and trying to start the idea of manhood over again. Okay. This is not about getting girls pregnant. It's not about okay. all the women that you have so on you. So it is breaking it's down about, toxic masculinity. Right. It was, in a That's way, good. it was reinforcing ideas about masculinity that perhaps, you know, uh, gender ideas in that way. But it was sort of empowering them to go back and go, don't look at this as an example of what black masculinity is. Look at taking care of your family and holding right. a job as ideas of black masculinity. And similarly, for women, it was primarily geared towards African-American women, which is interesting that Paula White came in through that. Right. But it was geared towards them with the idea of you don't value yourself. Your value is not based on the man that you have. Right. You don't have to do these things. But I think like a lot of these ideas, they get absorbed. She was introduced there. He had right. a huge audience. And we'll, we'll get to it too, mm-hmm. but, well, yeah, she has a huge African, like her, right. her congregation... Is primarily African American. I think she started with that, and there's yeah. also a weird element to me of of this sort of uh, white woman who's saying my suffering equates with your suffering. Yeah, that's a that's a and therefore, move, lady. And it, I don't know. It is. So I don't disagree with the idea of empowerment. I do disagree strongly with the notion that we worship someone or we worship Jesus during his life on earth 
who didn't even have a home. Right. Yeah. So let's right. let's get away from this piece. Sure. Let's go yeah. into some criticism over her appointment to this cabinet position, which, she should not which be, is not a cabinet right. position, but this advisory position. Yeah. Um, the move of putting this woman in an office inside the White House is, quote, a very ominous sign and signals that, quote, Christian narcissism has come into the White House, said Reverend uh, Barber, William J. Barber II. Who we like. Who we like. We are a fan. He uh, organized the Moral Monday protests in North Carolina, and he spoke at the Democratic National Convention in 2016. He says that the so-called prosperity gospel is a false gospel, comparing it to a theology that justified slavery because of economic prosperity. It's an attempt to interpret the gospel the gospel to be primarily about personal wealth and personal power, which is contrary to the theology of Jesus, where the good news was always focused on caring for the poor, the least of these, the stranger, the sick. Melissa Rogers, who headed the office as it was known under the Obama administration, urged White and her new office to embrace three priorities. One, form partnerships with faith-based and humanitarian organizations to serve people in need. Do so by partnering with organizations that reflect diverse faiths and beliefs, and do this work in a way that is consistent with the Constitution, which we know from the other activities of this particular administration isn't necessarily uh, high on the list of priorities. She also stressed the need to maintain a very strong bipartisan tradition of using these partnerships to serve people in need and do so with a wide variety of faith-based neighborhood organizations. As you said, mosques, synagogues, Mm -hmm. churches all need to be part of that. Uh, in a sign of how unpopular Mr. Trump remains with the African American, with African Americans, several hundred people from her heavily African American congregation left her church because of her association with him. This already bodes poorly for the office being able to do the work it is intended to do. Well, it's her siding with his his overtly racist views and and explicitly against the poor and the downtrodden. Right and the people who are being abused by this administration. Yeah, if you see being poor and downtrodden as a disease, then you can help cure it by helping and starting programs, not sort of saying we exclude you. Yeah, yeah. I don't think Paul White's ministry would extend to Jesus, frankly. No, it doesn't seem like it. No. So Tony Tony Perkins, who we'll talk about more later, Mm -hmm. he's the president of the Family Research Council, and he considers himself more traditional conservative Christian. He says, I didn't know Paula White before. She came from a different stream than I'd probably swim in, which is a nice little Mm -hmm. colloquialism. But as they become close over the last three years, he said he and other evangelicals who are not aligned with her theologically have come to realize their role with this administration is the same. And here is the bells and whistles here. Mm -hmm. We're there to influence public policy and move this nation forward, where faith is openly welcomed so that you don't have to hide the fact that you are a person of faith. Now, I don't understand when you had to hide the fact that you're a person of faith. When you are a Muslim. No, no, but I, certainly yeah, but not when you are a Christian. This is not who she's aiming towards. I understand that. It that is a it is the same. This particular administration is particularly harsh on Muslims. But he is doing the exact same thing that we've mm-hmm. talked about. Other large scale evangelical pushes right. of 
make people think that they are the ones that are being persecuted when they are the ones that are in power. Right. And this president is particularly susceptible to this idea because he believes as the leader of the free world that he is the most persecuted man on this planet, which is 100% ludicrous because the only persecution he's receiving is because of his actual actions. Right. Um, but he is a person who is very susceptible to this mindset mm -hmm. and therefore will make... He's also paranoid. Right. There's, there's, you know, right, it's, but I'm it's, it's just dangerous. To a ridiculous degree. Uh, further, her employment at the White House raises questions about whether she may be putting her church's tax-exempt status in question, as churches are not allowed to engage in pol overt political activity. Right. That is what grants them tax-exempt status. Exactly. It's one of the things that does. Though she has stepped down as the pastor, she could run into difficulty with the IRS if she remains active in the church, which we know from several uh, articles that I was reading, mm -hmm. she was doing these speeches in the last week, doing these presentations, and I don't know if they were at her church or she was just talking to the world to give right. her money, but... Um, President of Democracy 21 says, my sense is if she's leaving her church position and making a clean break that there would be no IRS problem. But if she's continuing in an official public role for, uh, for the church, well, working in the White House, that would cause tax status problems and she'd be using the church for political purpose. She hasn't disassociated her name from the church or her mm -hmm. church from her name which I think is a big problem. It's the exact same thing yeah, that we see with Trump and his businesses. It's They are very similar to each other. I think that is why Trump likes this woman so much, because I think he sees a version of himself. Asked if she had divested her financial stake in the church, a White House spokesman said they would not comment. Uh, it's been stated that she will not take a salary which I think is the same way that Trump seems to think mm -hmm. that he can get... He has a job, but if he's not taking the salary, is he beholden to the rules of that job? I don't know. That might be an argument that his attorneys make later in court. They've made every other one. Uh, it also raised... Her appointment also raised ethical questions. Her hire came just as she was promoting her latest book, and her, in her recent interviews about her new position, she also plugged her book and its references to her relationship with Donald Trump. Um, she's been, a White House spokesman said she was hired as a part-time special government employee and is permitted to maintain separate employment as well as her part-time government job. I don't know how, if you're the advisor of a, of a, an initiative, as they're calling it, that has liaisons with literally every branch of the federal government, mm -hmm. how that's a part-time job. I don't really understand. And the final uh, little thing I wanted to talk about is Eric Erickson, who we have name-checked on this mm -hmm. podcast before. He's an evangelical conservative political commentator. He's criticized Trump, you know, once or twice, but typically not yes. hard or much. Uh, he even said that some of the president's supporters were concerned by his decision to appoint Paula White to this position. Erickson said the hire could hurt his efforts to expand his appeal among skeptical evangelicals. The fact that there may be skeptical evangelicals when it comes to Trump is at least a heartening That's encouraging, to me. yes. Uh, there are lots of evangelicals who have been skeptical of him all along, and seeing a prosperity gospel minister 
most of these people look at as a heretic in charge of a faith-based outreach sends a signal that maybe he's not taking it as seriously as some people think. Erickson said, Even if some of the evangelical movement leaders who are standing shoulder to shoulder with her privately recognize that she... Standing shoulder to shoulder with her, privately recognize that she is not of the Orthodox Christianity and the faith they proclaim in the pulpit on Sundays. Critics further uh, raised concerns over her financial background since she's among the televangelists investigated by Senator Chuck Grassley over a decade ago. The inquiry into possible misuse of ministry donations. White has repeatedly stated never found any wrongdoing, but officials also never obtained sufficient documentation to complete their probe and instead handed over the accountability effort to the Evangelical Council for Financial financial Accountability, which also sounds like her new boss. I mean, just so many aspects of this person's life seems to mirror that of their current boss. See, I, I see a lot of a lot of problems with her from a theological point of view mm-hmm. and also from the fact that she seems to associate herself a great deal with celebrities. Yes. Whether it was Daryl Strawberry after his, uh, the baseball player, mm-hmm. after his battles with cocaine, whether it was Tyra Banks, whether he was, she just showed up. And I really do think that particularly... Why? Because they write bigger checks than twelve ninety nine. Right. But the idea being that she did get a big boost from a really prominent African-American minister and moves into this sort of orbit where she absorbs a lot of her, his followers. Yeah. And I think that was kind of a shame. I'd really be curious what he thinks of, uh, what Bishop Jakes thinks of her at this point. Yeah, and I didn't know, you know what the association is because he's, yeah. a, he, he's one of those very kind, even-handed people who measures his words very carefully. Yeah, but everything that I have seen from this woman, she seems like a female Donald Trump mm-hmm. in the the guise of a quote-unquote Christian because I don't believe what she espouses I don't believe that she, is yes, Christianity. It's not. And I, it's interesting that we're discussing that because I recently was in a Facebook chat that went on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a thread that went on for five days and almost 90 responses because I made a comment about a person making a statement that wasn't Christianity. And unusually, I got a lot of criticism from very liberal-minded people who were telling me, you can't say what Christianity is or isn't. Yeah. And one person... And I really wanted Mm. you to be like, no, I can and I do on a bi-weekly basis. Here's my podcast. But you didn't do that. And I felt like I don't want to encourage arguments here. I'm trying to encourage people who are willing to, uh, actually open to receiving some sort of education to receive that, not just people who want to, you know, as they did there, call me an idiot. So the point that I'm, I was trying to make is that we can't, if I tie a tablecloth around my neck, it doesn't make me a superhero. I, I can't just declare I'm a Christian and do all these things that are the opposite of what Christianity teaches and then right. go... But well, I the problem a, is there are enough people mm-hmm. who espouse themselves as Christian, mm-hmm. as Christian, who are doing these things, so that when new people come in and start doing them, they're just like, well, they Isn't say they're Christian, do, right? so I, I can say that I that's am. the Christianity that they want to follow. What she's done really is create, as evangelicalism often is, or fundamentalist evangelicalism, is an alternative gospel. Yeah. That is a pyramid scheme, y'all. Right. If you read into what she ha- does and has, it's mm-hmm. a it's a pyramid scheme. 
Yeah. And it's been that way with a lot of ministers. And we're going to explore that at a later date because there's a lot of ministers in reading about her history that she was associated with yeah. that I'm like, oh my God, that guy and this guy and well, these other people. Well, it's just like who, she, may, she, you mm-hmm. know, her second marriage was you know, founded in the middle of her first marriage. Right. The pastor that she took over for died of an overdose of cocaine and heroin. Mm-hmm. And that was his her spiritual, you know, they were spiritually intimate. But you didn't, did you not know he was doing heroin and cocaine? Or did you not care that he was doing heroin mm-hmm. and cocaine? To the, to the point of overdose. Like, well, this is also the these issue. are the people that you have surrounded yourself right. with. And I'm supposed to look to you as my, as, as a vessel, of, as a literal vessel of God, is, as the words yeah, that come yes. out of your mouth heal me? And that's what What the biggest, I think, the, the strangest attitude that comes out of this kind of, of belief, this alternative faith, is really the idea that the rules that they're putting out there, if Paula White did not condemn other people for doing the exact same things that she's right. done, it would be a different story. Right, I, yes, I don't... You know. Uh, I think it sucks for your your ex-husband and right. your kids, but it's none of my business. But right. if you're then going to stand in front of me and be like, I am the vessel of God, and so what I do is what I do, but I'm going to condemn you for what you do, I, well, I, we're not. The I front can't. man of any rock band goes through the same kinds of issues, but it doesn't make any spiritual proclamations, and that's why no one has a problem with their hypocrisy, because they're not being hypocrites. Except it's Scott just, Stapp. Well, <laughs> but it's pretty much what they do, right? It's the behavior yeah. that you expect. Yeah. The behavior that you don't expect from a person who's on a spiritual uh, position as a spiritual leader is to be making the kind of decisions and making the kind of claims that she made. Right. The fact that you really believe that you're in a vision from God and everything that you say is God's word, it's it's not, it's I, not I, true. I, I, mean, it's, from, I come uh, from a place where I don't even know that she believes that. She mm-hmm. wants the people who write her checks to believe that. Right. But I don't know that she believes that. And this goes back to almost every conversation we have comes down to me going, but do the people espousing this actually right. believe it, know. or are they conning people? I and see. it's like the, the uh-huh. Hell House right. conversation was a similar thing, where I was like, do they believe this, or do they just want to scare you into believing I it? I can't speak for... And then laugh at you behind your back. For what her belief is, I can only, um, citing an actual great spiritual leader, our Lord and Savior, at least mine. Um, <laughs> who's yeah, but we refer to him in the royal right. hour. That you know a tree by its fruits. Yeah. And so from the results of her behavior, you're able to see what, you know, I can identify an apple tree because it's giving apples. And that right. was a very clever, simple way to talk to people who are essentially yeah. farmers and fishermen about how do you identify when a person's good or bad like, well, what are they doing? <laughs> right. And so you look at what she's doing in this obsessive celebrity and power grab that's yeah. going on. I think you're right. It's a pyramid scheme. Give me twelve ninety nine, and God will give you visions yep. and healing. And it's doing two things. It's giving you that sense of entitlement. Now God is speaking directly to you. 
and God is speaking through me because I'm speaking for God. That just seems like such an irresponsible thing. You don't know what the mental health of your congregation is. No, you don't. And so you... Especially okay, when it's 20,000 people. You do if you're a pastor. Okay. And you are dealing with those people every day. Okay. And even in the larger church, like uh, we were not far away from one of the local large Methodist churches, mm-hmm. there's under pastors. There's people who actually have a group that they're responsible for. But she also, for. yeah, she's never been to seminary. Mm. Yeah. Right? She has no experience in government at all. Right. And and I don't believe that someone with her current history mm-hmm. cares much about the division of church and state. No. Which is going to be... I'll tell you. Here, that'll be perfect time for a brief Bible story. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> So this comes from Matthew 22, 15, 22, and you tell me if you've heard it before. So the Pharisees, these are the people who are part of the, the, the very corrupt Jewish leaders at the time, not all Jewish leaders in perpetual, these ones, went and plotted to entrap Jesus. And also the current ones. Sorry, right. go ahead. <laughs> so he said to their disciples, uh, Teacher, speaking to Jesus, we know that you're sincere and you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, and you show deference to no one, for you regard people... Without partiality, so they're trying to butter Jesus up. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to this test? Show me the coin that's used for the tax. And they brought him a coin. And he said, Whose head is this on the coin and whose title? And they answered, The emperor's. Because again, they were at this point uh, serving Rome. Right. And they answered, The emperor's. And he said to them, Give to the emperor the things that belong to the emperor and God the things that are God's. This is a very famous quote. It's like, this is that and that is this. You can't use religion as an excuse not to pay your taxes. Right. You can't mix religion and politics. You can't do that. And this is something that Jesus espoused. It's a huge part of it. Yeah. Later also, on, mm-hmm. you can't, as an elected official, refuse to serve people based right. on your religion. Exactly. Now, Jesus later on, there are Kim several Davis. times when people, uh, his followers, some of his more extreme followers, not necessarily the ones that are closer to him, attempt to capture him and make him a king. And he repeatedly emphasized, well, I'm a king, but not from here. So that's not my job. Yeah, no, I <laughs> don't so, need to this petty dispute. Right, I'm not I'm a not part of this, it. this thing with Rome. I'll talk to, and he does, talk to Romans. He talks to Jews. He talks to Greeks. He talks to anybody who will be willing to talk to him. He has no nationalistic enterprise to push. So the idea of embracing and creating a Christian nationalism, the way that Paula White has, again, maybe influenced by the same kind of books and the same sort of literature and the same sort of mindset that we read about. I don't know. She didn't become Mm -hmm. a Christian until she was 18, and I don't know anything about her But it is a part of that construct, the exceptionalism. God is here. We're a sacred country. Her invocation prayer. Yeah, it's... He's, and we're going to get a lot right. more of her, I think. Well, Sadly, maybe. I think we might. <laughs> but the thing is, we really have to combat that idea. The idea that somehow God is saving this all for these people of this descent who came here to take over this country and wrest it from the people who are here. I just feel like, God even, has God even ever really... Do we have any sort of credible... 
source that God has ever even spoken to a white person? <laughs> That's a wild one. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what you consider a credible source, but right. we know who God spoke to in the Bible, and not one of them was a white person. No. There were so, some black people. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like actual African black so people. So I, I don't. I, this idea that white people are exceptional. Well, people of European descent are exceptional is, this is when in no way have we have have they ever been the chosen people. They've ne- that's not what scriptures do not indicate that God has ever spoken no, to a white people, person. Yes. That. Maybe John Paul II, he was a white person. Right? Right. He was Polish. The po- I <laughs> yeah, he was a white person. I, I was recently I was taking a vacation in Nevada uh I guess it was Nevada City, right? Yeah. And I was notified that the chocolate bonbons that were being sold at the counter, that a box is prepared and goes to the Holy Father in Rome. He says, yes. And the, 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 the promoter, it was in a wine shop, and he was obviously Italian. So a lot of Italian immigrants in California, I'm more, realizing more uh, now. And he said, yeah. And it even they even sent some to the Polish Pope. And like, <laughs> Which is funny. The non-Italian not the German pope, pope. Right. The German Pope didn't even stick around with really it long. That's fine. Bit. That's fine. Okay. But anyhow, so, yes. More on this. We'll have to do a deep dive into this subject in the future. Yeah. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. If you like it, please subscribe and leave us a review and share it with a friend. We have an internet at home. WithoutWorksPodcast.com, our show notes, links to stories we talk about, and transcripts for our episodes can be found there. We're also reachable at WithoutWorksPod at gmail.com, on Twitter at WithoutWorksPod, and on Facebook at WithoutWorksPodcasts. All those links are also on the website, so please go there and have a look around. I've been Amity, he's been Lemuel, and we remind you to get out there and do something good. Amity!